After a time, you may find that having is not so pleasing a thing after all as wanting. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Mind Matters. I'm your host, Adam Daniels, and with me in the studio, as usual, is Harrison Keeley and Elon Martin. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking about a book called, I don't know if that'll, yeah, The Molecule, Molecule of More, How a Single Chemical in Your Brain Drives Love, Sex, and Creativity and Will Determine the Fate of the Human Race. Uh, by Dr. Daniel Lieberman and Michael Long. Um, the book itself is a summation of a, a wide range of uh, scientific studies and research on, uh, on dopamine, which is the molecule of more, as talked about in the uh, book's title. Um, it borrows heavily from the dopaminergic mind, um, which is a very dense scientific work. So it's not very approachable for the lay reader. And so uh, in the introduction, um, these guys specifically cite that book and said that their goal in writing this one was to uh, make the insights from the dopaminergic mind more approachable and accessible to the average and the lay person. And so a lot of their stories and a lot of their anecdotes, um, a lot of the way that they frame things is specifically so that it's more accessible uh, for the average person to understand, which is really helpful because having read The Dopaminergic Mind, I didn't really get a whole lot of it because it was gobbledygook. Um, but this takes some of the same things that I remember from The Dopaminergic Mind and makes it far more understandable. So. Um, a couple of things just to start off with, um, with dopamine, there is, um, the, uh, two tracks for the way dopamine acts in our, in our brains that there is the, um, the desire circuit and then also the control circuit. Um, one makes you want more and then the other helps you plan how to get more. Um, and you also have, uh, they talk about the here and now hormones, um, the H&Ns, which serve to uh, balance out the way that dopamine works in your brain. So that way um, they're trying to give you exactly what's going on, on your, going on in your brain. So that way you, you know, well, what's going on in your brain? Because once you know what's going on, it's it's not this mysterious and nebulous thing. It's something that you can actually work with and work from. And uh, was really useful and insightful in that way. And it has seven seven chapters. Um, and oh, let me try and get them. Yeah. So there's a chapter on love, drugs, domination, creativity, and madness, politics, progress. And the final chapter seven is harmony. Um, before we go any further, you guys have anything y'all want to? Well, I've got a question about <clears throat> desire and control. I haven't read the book, but um, do they get into, well, first of all, are these 
two separate systems or kind of two subsystems of the same system? Do you know? Do they clarify that? Um, well, the way they have it in the book, it's kind of just like a diagram where they have mm -hmm. like the human brain, and then there is you know where the dopamine originates from, and then it can either go up to the uh, desire up along the desire pathway, mm -hmm. or it can go into the uh, frontal lobe, which is the control circuit. Okay. So it's kind of like two parts of the same uh, system, I guess. Although there are two different pathways that do two different things. Yeah, because it would be interesting. Um, I think it's, you know, I, I'd guess this probably happens, but where one of the, one of the systems is abnormal. Mm -hmm. And so you've got like, uh, you've got the, the the desire system that's overloaded and but then you have no way to control to, to actually get anything so you're just constantly stuck in i guess a um like a searching yeah. mode constantly trying to get things but never able to actually receive them but then also to i want what would the opposite be so to have the controlling but to have no desire <laughs> would, would well that... the way that uh they kind of talk about it in the book um talking about the extremes, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the extreme of desire, um, either total apathy versus, you know, constantly searching for more mm -hmm. and more and more. Um, those would be uh, someone who really doesn't care, mm -hmm. uh, very apathetic, very go with the flow, um, versus somebody who is very impulsive, uh, mm -hmm. very much in the ADHD, uh, side of things. Mm -hmm. Um, but then that also ties in with the control aspect because somebody without control, but the impulse to, to get more again is the impulse of ADHD side of things, which is why, uh, and can explain certain people who have very scattered thoughts and they jump from one thing to the next without really much logical, mm -hmm. you know, steps mm -hmm. brought forward. Um, and then somebody who has a desire for more and a pathological control would be in their in their book they give the example of uh is it buzz aldrin buzz aldrin yeah who made it to the moon and then battled suicidal thoughts severe depression and alcoholism al along with some other things like uh i think divorce was one of them because he he didn't have you know, once you reach that, it's like, how can you top that? Because that's kind of what, mm. you know, the dopamine wants. It wants to always be pushing forward for newer and greater heights. But it's like, you went to the moon. How do you exactly top that? So mm. he had to go through a very hard and long process of, of sorting out his own motivations and his own desires in order to take that very strong control dopamine system that he has Um and put it towards good use. And mm -hmm. so he ended up, you know, writing a bunch of books and uh, came up with some kind of new way of space travel. Uh, I can't, they didn't go into specifics on it and I didn't look into it, but I mean, he, again, because he had this, this drive to do things, he was able to, you know, come up with some really interesting and very cool stuff. So mm -hmm. they do address, some bits mm -hmm. and pieces of that. And uh, so it's good to get that because then you you have this spectrum mm -hmm. of all of these different things, you know, high desire, low desire, high control, low control, and the variability of people and how it can explain things. They even go into uh, like 
the creativity and madness where uh, latent latency, I think is what they called, or no salience, it was salience. So something that's um, something that's important, something that stands out. If you go to, uh, you know, if you're going to work and you go the same route and all of a sudden there's a, a new bakery, well, that sticks up in your mind as being salient because, oh, this, I've not been here before. Maybe this is, you know, going to be really good. And, you know, maybe this will be my new favorite place to go for, for coffee in the morning or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's kind of how salience can play a role in normal functioning things. But then on the pathological side of things where you get into schizophrenia, for instance, mm -hmm. someone will see a stop sign and think it's salient mm -hmm. and then be, because they have the signal for salience, their mind then has to come up with a reason for why it was salient. Why did this get triggered? Mm -hmm. And then, and then that's why you have all of these, like, you know, the, uh, the TV anchor man is talking to me and yeah. they're, they're trying to abduct me and, and all of that thing is because the, the trigger is going off when it shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting in that respect because you get all of these. Well, so there was, uh, you mentioned Adam, the, the kind of, uh, a different mechanism that is activated or, um, stimulated by a whole other set of hormones, um, that here and now, uh, mechanism that we have, which appreciates those things that are, uh, in front of us to enjoy and experience and um have a kind of uh intimate um uh, interpersonal um feeling for that takes us not into the goal-oriented mechanisms uh of uh the dope the dopaminergic mind but into um into just enjoying oneself in the moment uh mm -hmm. and and having a uh, a cognition of one's own joy uh, in the here and now. And it was interesting in the example of Buzz Aldrin that the authors state that he, he was so forward looking and, and uh, his uh, dopamine control circuit was so uh, overactive that there was no time to, or there was very little in his being to appreciate his, his accomplishments, uh, not even necessarily in a, in a overly egotistical way, but just to, just to reflect upon, uh, the, the success and the incredible level of achievement that, that he received, um, to take some joy in reflecting upon, you know, all those steps. It was always on to the next thing. Now, that may not be an issue with most people, uh, uh, although the, the authors do get into, you know, workaholics and individuals who are always kind of looking forward and, and not, uh, not experiencing their lives, not allowing for a, uh, a moment of, of peace. Um, so that was just a whole other piece I, of, Mm -hmm. of of the the kind of um thinking on how we're living our lives and what mechanisms we might be engaged in uh that i think was a value uh in this book that you know what um 
what patterns of of uh, thinking and being and and uh, forward looking or even addictive behavior uh, because we don't have to necessarily be addicted to to drugs or sex or uh, certain behaviors to recognize where you know we, we might have some habitual behaviors that are uh, th that are stimulating a, th this kind of uh, desire circuit that that isn't productive that is only kind of this desire for more more you know mm -hmm. um, that doesn't kind of feed us in any constructive way necessarily yeah it's the way that they they talk about it and I think I mentioned this earlier there's the uh, the peripersonal and then the extrapersonal space. And what that means is your peripersonal space is that which is immediately within your arm's grasp. So I can grab my phone, I can grab my Kindle, I can grab my pen. These are all things within my peripersonal space. And uh, so this involves the, the here and now hormones because these are things that are here right now in front of me. But anything beyond that goes into the extra personal space where now I'm having to think about how am I going to get to that because I can't immediately get to it. So that's part of the, the dopamine. Uh, that's where the dopamine systems kick in. And so that gives you the context for um, what it is that you experience where, whereas um, going to a bar and you know, meeting new people there, uh, an attractive woman, for instance, who you, you know, your eyes lock and then you get up the courage to go and talk to her and you're laughing and joking. And that's, uh, that's all the dopamine thing. Fast forward that several years where you're married and, you know, have been married for several years, then you are in the here and now hormones where it's the reality of who the person is and what the relationship is that that relationship, though it may have started because of a dopamine attraction, a, a push to, to seek out uh, something more, something new and exciting, you have to, if you want a relationship to grow and you want it to evolve and you want it to become something that's lasting because dopamine doesn't last, it's, it's very much a, you know, <laughs> it's, a, it's a short burst of excitement, like you got to do this now and you got to do this right away. And then once you do it, it's like, okay, that's it. You're done. Move on. And so it's like that with relationships where there's the dopamine at first. And then if you want it to be lasting and fulfilling, it has to change from that type of excitement to the appreciation of who the person is and, and how y'all and, you know, the two of you interact and, um, by the same token, it, it seems like a good balance, uh, of all of those elements that you described, um, including uh, forward-looking and planning, uh, can be constructive. Like you, you can um, you can use these systems or 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 engage in them, uh, you know, without your being even conscious of it. To to plan consciously, to you know, build your dream home, further a career, uh, plan plan out your family, all those things do have a kind of uh, reward uh, and and are uh, motivating and engage these systems too. But, you know, like you were suggesting, there is this kind of um, 
there's a desire uh, that might propel you forward, but also kind of uh, balancing out both the control circuit and the desire circuit um, is, I think, what helps individuals have successful lives. Um, and what that means for each person is highly individual and depending mm -hmm. on, you know, what you imagine a successful life for yourself uh, would look like. Uh, but but very interesting frameworks. To yeah, work for sure. There was one interesting story where uh, there was a, a guy who was a workaholic and whether or not this is a true story or not, I don't know, but it was an interesting story nonetheless that I think could be uh, demonstrative in terms of how to approach some of these, um, some of these, I guess, ways of being or modes of being. So the guy's a workaholic, very uh, aloof to the interpersonal relationships, very short-tempered, and the and so his work became his life. Um, he ended up getting into an altercation with a, a taxi guy, uh, a physical altercation where uh, the the taxi driver decided to not press charges. And so because of this instance, the guy who was the workaholic realized that his job was at risk. And so he decided to go seek help in order to try and figure out how to deal with this because his work was his life at that point. Mm -hmm. And after trying a few things, um, w one of his therapists was like, you know what, let's just try something totally different. Let's have you just pretend feign interest in in people's life essentially the this therapist turned him into a manipulator in order to get what he wanted which was you know better relationships with his peers and so whether he wanted to or not whether he cared or not he would compliment people's appearances he would uh buy pizza for his coworkers when they would be working late and this these kinds of things and um, he noticed that he started to enjoy getting the smiles from his coworkers as opposed to uh, people, you know, being very standoffish with him. And at one point, the breaking point uh, was where, um, you know, after doing this for a period of time, one of his underlings uh, came into his office, bawling her eyes out because she had um, somebody had stolen her social security number and taken out a credit card in her name that she didn't know about. And now she's getting hassled by, uh, credit card debt, debt collectors, and she didn't know what to do. And she came to him for help and for comfort and for something changed in him in that moment to where it, it, I guess it was the fake it until you make it where it finally clicked. And so he was able to you know, work through all of his other past issues. And um, it was just a good story, whether or not true or not, it was still, I think, a good, uh, a good narrative that shows once you understand kind of where you're at and where you might want to go, there's a way of navigating things in order to get you there. And uh, so there's little things like that all throughout the book that are just like, yeah, it was like a kind of a cognitive, a metacognitive hack, mm -hmm. a behavioral hack. And that's, uh, that's, I think, one of the other valuable parts of the book is the, you know, the, the authors recommend cognitive behavioral therapy as, you know, 
ways of um, looking at you know different approaches to one's thinking and one's goals and how one might go about uh, achieving them. And it's through um, th these uh, it's through these mechanisms of dopamine that um, through the the control circuit that we can that we can strengthen to some degree that we can that we're already going to be motivated to uh, to achieve our goals um, but if we're not aware of our thinking and of how our thought processes can sabotage our efforts uh, then you know we we're, we're left with job insecurity that he was a vice president yeah. of a company who who was you know the being basically I think he was being read the, the riot act because mm -hmm. he was such a jerk. Yeah. So, uh, you know, to talk about understanding narratives, one of the cool things that I thought, uh, about this book was how, uh, you can see where in the Gurdjieffian work, you understand that man is the machine. He does things and creates narratives post hoc. I think that's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, post hoc, in order to explain the things that he does. And that is exactly the kind of things that you get uh, from from some of the anecdotes in this book where uh, the dopamine, whether it's the desire or it's the control, whatever it is, people are driven to do things from the biological level. And then they create the narratives post hoc in order to explain what it is that they were doing or why they were doing what they were doing when really it was just because you know in the case of like a schizophrenic it's like you have a personality disorder your your brain is miswired it has nothing to do with the fact that the cia is out to get you they're not that this is a wiring issue uh so it's it's insightful and in, in its ability to give you a means of examining your own behavior and realizing okay so this is dopamine uh, and all of the other stuff is bullcrap that I'm just telling myself, um, which hard enough to do on its own because it, you, you can't exactly think with the way you think. And so, uh, there's, there's some quotes from people who are on or who took like methamphetamines or cocaine, who felt like they were on top of the world, felt like they could do whatever they wanted, who, um, very grandiose and that showed in their personalities. And there was one little bit where people were talking about how other people spoke about their personality changes after being on fed am amphetamines for so long, when their personalities changed, people started to be like, Hey, what's going on? You're, you know, uh, you're getting a little too big for your britches there. And some of those responses, some of the responses from the people who were abusing meth, uh, amphetamines were like, oh, he's just jealous. So again, that, that comes back to the fact that they're just, uh, you know, narrating their own, uh, actions without having any real insight into the fact that no, you're on amphetamines and it makes you think you're special. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I really enjoyed that part cause I thought it was really cool. Cause it's just like, oh, okay. So it, it was an insight into how you can uh, evaluate your own behavior from 
from a dopamine from a dopaminergic perspective, mm -hmm. which I found very interesting. It really highlights the kind of like the, the the chief character flaws of humanity in general, which are like uh, well, first one is self importance or egotism. So the the tendency to to trust one's own thoughts and opinions, and mm -hmm. especially about oneself, and of course that branches off into every kind of rationalization and justification and projection and evasion and it's uh once you understand those concepts exist and you kind of see a few examples of them then it's hard it's hard not to see them everywhere because they are everywhere so well just in, in some of those examples right so uh, oh you're getting a bit too big for your breeches and of course rationally if if you had this kind of unemotional logic being like a Vulcan or something, they'd be able to say, "Yes, logically that makes sense. That that you know that, <laughs> that makes all of the the data at at hand fit together in a logical picture." But no, it's like that that one very obvious truth. It's like there's a like a a negative gravity well around it, or, mm -hmm. or just like like a magnetic field where it's just whoop, just, <laughs> just whoop, no anything but that, right? So yeah, they just yeah, <laughs> latch on to some something that allows allows you to keep on to that illusory image of yourself as well. No, he's just jealous because really I am the shit, you know. I mm -hmm. I am great, so the only reason must be that this guy's an idiot and just can't see how great I am, and like I said, you see it everywhere. So pretty much every conversation about politics or religion or, or relationships, anything of importance to people, you're, for the most part, in any conversation like that, you're not actually talking about the ideas or the evidence or the facts or, or just the, or just reason or logic or common sense. None of that actually is part of the, part of the equation. It's, it's all these it's just two, two ch children in adult bodies, um, like uh, smacking each other with sticks and getting mad at each other because that's essentially the that that's really what's what's motivating the the entire conversation is I'm right or you make me feel bad because you you say I'm wrong but I'm right because I don't want to feel wrong because that makes me feel bad so I'm gonna then make try to make you feel bad and convince myself that you're the bad one and that you're wrong and then it's just nyeh, 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 back and forth and that's pretty much life in a nutshell for, right oh but i mentioned okay so self-importance well uh yeah self-importance and 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 vanity they're pretty much the same thing um just that high high opinion of oneself and and then the 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 one of the in one of the interesting thing way one of the interesting ways that that works is then to then project um the negative the bad things about yourself onto others so it's not just that you're jealous you know you, it's like well that person has a really high opinion of himself it's like i hate that guy he's so full of himself it's like really when it really it's you're full of yourself or i'm full of myself and i'm just then again that that's that's not just a magnetic you know um slight deviation from the course it rebounds it right back to the person so it's like no you no you so very interesting but i just on a related note 
you'd mentioned the uh, the salience feature and how that can go haywire. So you see references everywhere. And I just happened to be reading on a totally different subject. I, I, I was reading the Wikipedia pages on um, delusions and ideas of self, delusions and ideas of reference. And though that's a big feature of <clears throat> what they call delusional disorder. So ideas of, of reference are just exactly that, to see something out in the world as a personal message to you or to have relevance to you in some way that actually that no no one normally does and it's obviously not so it might be it's like you know uh, it might be just noticing something something and then coming to the conclusion that the CIA must be listening into your conversation because you're so important or random bits of conversation that someone says and that's automatically taken as a reference to you and so it's it's really it's a weird form of uh, of narcissism and like and self regard, not not in the sense of the kind of classic narcissistic personality disorder, just person who's full of themselves and thinks they're you know thinks they're all that, um, but we're totally egocentric, where everything has to do with with you and those little snippets of conversation or those offhand remarks that have nothing to do with you, <clears throat> everything all of a sudden becomes about you, and and. I can't remember who it was who, one of the famous psychoanalysts or, or, or theorists, I can't remember which, but it had said something like that, uh, that any kind of mental illness or mental disorder is like you take a normal feature of, of the, just the human personality and then you just you know, dial it up to 11 and then that's, that's what pretty much all mental illness is. If you just take that one normal thing and then just go, Reep. so that idea of self-reference i mean everyone everyone will do that to a degree hmm. maybe even very rarely so they might just once hear a bit of conversation and think oh is that about me because maybe and, and that's just i think that just comes down to um well it's normal there's the way the mind works is it's a, it's associative in nature one thing reminds you of something else and you make the connection that's how we think. That's how we talk. That's how language works. We wouldn't be able to, to, to speak or to think if we weren't able to, to make those associations and to, to connect ideas, uh, dissimilar ideas through some, through some kind of similarity. So if you are feeling a particular way or if you've done something that, uh, that you're ashamed about or something, and then you hear someone talking like in a disparaging way about where you can't hear who they're talking about, but they mention the same situation. It's like, oh, they're talking about me. Maybe it's public knowledge. Like maybe, you know, people know about that thing. So they might just be talking behind your back or, oh, do they know that I did that thing? Like, did they find out? And so the, the thought spirals back to you. And uh, so in that sense, it's, it's normal. But then when you, when you dial it up completely, it, it's the paranoid schizophrenic or the just totally delusional person who's built up this entire system about how everything in the world is everything that happens in the world in, in their vicinity is all about them. And it's just, it's weird. There was one, uh, uh, there was one, uh, quote from somebody with schizophrenia who said that they saw a stop sign and they thought it was a sign from their, like a sign from their mother telling them to stop looking at women. And, you, and 
you know, everything yeah. in your conscious awareness should know this is a government sign that's put on every freaking street corner. This is not mm -hmm. a special thing. It's been there for years. It's been there for years. <laughs> but for whatever reason in this particular instance, because mm -hmm. of whatever mm -hmm. was going on, it was a message from his mother saying, stop looking yeah. at women, which is. Well, and that's that uh, that kind of puts the two two of those ideas together, the. Um, uh, just the evasive maneuver that the mind takes and the projective one where, because these are obviously in that case, the, the relationship with the mother and the, and the, 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 like the advice or the order or the remonstrance to him to, to stop looking at women. Obviously that's important to him and affects him emotionally. He probably also has a sense of, <clears throat> of shame about it that he's, that has grown in him as a result of him doing something he knows his mother doesn't like that he then thinks that he shouldn't be doing. And that, that whole thought process, that whole emotional thought process then gets projected onto this stop sign. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, so that's a way that's, an, it's an interesting way of approaching a, approaching something that is important, um, like relevant, like salient to one's emotional mental health. And then, projecting it in the world as a, as a, in just in this weird distorted form, right? Because you can see that it makes sense. Yeah. Right. The, there's, it's, it, <laughs> it's, it might be crazy, but it doesn't, it's not, it's really not that crazy. <laughs> it's the, yeah, it, it's that, just that associative process dialed up to 11 because here's this, here's this, this very, well, relevant, you know, relevant, emotionally charged issue. That's it right there. And then, and then you, it's like overhearing the, the snippet of conversation, right? You see stop. It's like, oh, well, what do I have to stop doing? Well, my mom says I should stop doing this. And, uh, but, but because well, it, it could have been just the fact that he was looking at the stop sign at the time that yeah. he was having this emotional yeah. thing, his, uh, his dopamine, whatever got triggered his his salience trigger got, mm -hmm. got triggered mm -hmm. as, as he was looking at the sign and so therefore the stop sign was telling him the things that were going on in his head mm -hmm. or well, something to that effect so i think that uh what you guys just said speaks to a much larger issue and that is that when we're emotionally primed when we're undergoing a great deal of stress or we have some big issue that we're kind of dealing with in the background not necessarily consciously uh, that isn't getting uh, processed, that isn't being worked on, that isn't getting reflected upon, mm -hmm. uh, then we become this kind of cat on a hot tin roof, hair trigger organism that um, it becomes more vulnerable to reacting to stimuli and and misinterpreting things. And I've been there, uh, you know, I've, I, it's, it's a hell of a thing to be in that sort of a state because your uh, these mechanisms are are running roughshod over your you know the the kind of frontal lobe that that would regulate all of your you know logical more more reasoning uh, faculties and and the awareness that comes with thinking about how you're thinking that gets thrown out the window, um, but there is this. Uh, there's definitely something to be said for uh, cultivating the here and now hormones 
via stimulation of the vagus nerve and and perhaps meditation and uh, working with one's hands, uh, doing things that are focused in the, what is it the peripersonal space, Adam? Uh, all of these things are a, um, a kind of uh, proactive approach to um, being less vulnerable to reacting in the moment. Um, because, you know, once you've, and he gives a very good example of uh, the, the guys who go out uh, on the boat and realize that um, the, the waves are, are very high and that they're very soon going to reach the coral reef. And then they lose the, the power, the rudder of the ship. So he notices within seconds that he's gone into complete panic, but realizes he's gone into a panic. And once he's realized that shifts into a logical reasoning mode, decides to put the sails up on the boat, which would allow them to steer the, the boat outside of the trajectory of the, the reef. And basically they save themselves. Uh, they couldn't jump off of the boat because the, because of the undertow and the waves ability to throw them onto the rocks. But then something happens when he gets back to his room after safely coming to shore. And that is that he breaks down crying and, and, and shaking, shaking uncontrollably, uncontrollably, which is a very normal reaction. He simply had to uh, put his whole being into high logical reason, reasoning gear for those minutes, those critical minutes in order to save their lives. And then you deal with the post-traumatic stress of, of the situation afterward. You do the, the somatic um, therapy, the shaking, and you, you let out the, you know, the, the, the kind of anguish, the I almost got crushed and, and died, you know, feelings of, mm -hmm. of fear and, and, uh, and horror and terror. Um, but you see, if he was the paranoid schizophrenic, he might see the coral reef as his mother berating him, right? <laughs> and then, and then wouldn't be able to yeah. to come back around to well to go into that mode, that logical reasoning mode, right? Because there there are degrees to to all of these things, right? So the paranoid schizophrenic is the most extreme in in this area, and then with the guy on the boat, he was able to you know, to turn off that, that fear response to it or to dampen it down to an extent where he could deal with the situation. And then below, you know, you, you could have the person that just panics and then isn't able to do anything with it. So you've got this, this whole spectrum of responses. Um, and well, I was, I was kind of slightly inspired by that. What I was thinking about the paranoid schizophrenic is that you've got, again, coming back to the, to what your first point, there about the um, the emotional issues, the like the things, the important things going on that you either deal with or don't deal with. So the extreme mental illness will be kind of the extreme of not dealing with things to the point where they get so big that they take on a form of their own, like seeing your mother in a stop sign. And instantly, I'm I'm wondering if his mother had ever actually told him that, or if it was a double projection, and he was projecting what he thought his mother would say to him because of his own in like just internal. Uh, shame and guilt 
And then, so that was a projection onto his mother, which was then projected onto the, onto the stop sign. Um, so that can just, that's the extent that projection can go, I guess. But then um, that, even that is an extreme version of something, which was what you were implying that uh, can, that does apply to everyone that we all, that we all do to a degree. Cause I'd mentioned about self-importance and, and, you know, egotism and always being right and ignoring that, that very obvious core truth around which everything slides that we're all, we all have things that we're ignoring things that are probably pretty obvious and that we just don't want to deal with. And then, and I, I think pr pretty much everyone engages in that kind of projection to a degree ev evasion and evasion and projection. And then in, in crazy times, crazy social, crazy times of like social hysteria, it just gets amped up all over the place. And that's, mm -hmm. that's why Twitter is the best place to research um, psychopathology, you know, because you see all the ways in which humanity goes wrong <laughs> on one social media page. In real time. In real time. There's another interesting um, line. I think it's from the beginning of the section on, on creativity and madness where um, they're talking about John Nash, mm -hmm. the, the famous mathematician who uh, somebody had asked him, you know, you're so smart, you're so intelligent, you were able to do this, these, you know, mind bending equations, how could you, you know, possibly think that there, you know, that there's alien messages uh, coming to you. And his response was, well, the same place that I got the mathematics is the same place where I'm getting the voices. It's, it was the same pathway, hmm. which I thought was really interesting that like literally madness and creativity are the same thing. It's just like you were saying, it's the degree to which uh, you're on that, that spectrum or, or where you are on it, that, you know, keeps you from the fine edge of creati mm -hmm. creativity or madness, mm -hmm. um, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. And also kind of scary. <laughs> yeah, because with creativity, you have to either, either well, this this is kind of a big philosophical question: is what the what's the what's the true nature of creativity? If there's a, an external source from which creativity comes, like something, something um, like spiritual and metaphysical in nature, like a like a Platonic realm or something, then that's one explanation. Or it could all come from some or to a large degree come from some internally generated source or a combination of the two. But to be creative, you have to have access to that source. Yes. Right. And so you have to, and it could be, so in either case, it could be from somewhere else, or it could be from, you know, deep within your, your own subconscious, whatever that is. And, um, and then what's madness? Well, it's like, you can, you can encounter a lot of weird things in either of those places. Well, I was thinking of this very issue in the context of the Wachowskis, the filmmakers uh, who were responsible for the Matrix films, Cloud Atlas, V for Vendetta, and a number of other very interesting uh, films that I think speak to, obviously they speak to some important truths and uh, metaphysical, even metaphysical realities. And 
the my my feeling is because both of these brothers decided to change their sex, uh, and while that isn't a um, well, it's high, first of all, it's a highly unusual development in one sense, and I don't want to disparage. This isn't about disparaging them in any in any sense, but but what I was my question to about this. Uh, these two incredibly creative um, filmmakers is it, is there something about their receptivity, their creativity, their very high level of uh, um, input from the information field or or whatever it is that uh, where these creative ideas um, exist from or or can can be extrapolated from. Is there something there? Is is there a level of a high level of creativity that also made them receptive to not quite believing that they were male? Well, there's at least in the way that they describe it in the book, creativity is involved, or yeah, it, it takes an instability. You have to, in order to be creative, which is to say, to do something no one else has done before, you have to break out of the mold of what currently exists. So if everyone, like I was watching a video of uh, uh, an elite swimmer from back in 2000, who everyone at that time in this particular race, like the 200 meter freestyle, they all swam the same way. But here was this guy who decided he was going to change things up a little bit. I like to live dangerously. <laughs> I also like to live dangerously. Um, who who tweaked his uh the way he swam so that way he had longer strokes and you know breathed a little bit differently and uh when you know other people found out about it they're like oh this isn't gonna work this isn't gonna you know do anything but that once he started actually winning races and breaking records people started taking notice mm -hmm. and so then everybody else started shifting it which then caused a couple of other people to to challenge ways of uh, of doing things, challenge the techniques, which eventually led to Michael Phelps and Michael Phelps dominating the the swimming um, mm. field. Mm -hmm. um, but but my point being that there's creativity is a breaking out of the norm. It is a breaking out of what is socially acceptable in some sense mm -hmm. or some way, and so it takes some kind of instability to do that. So then, well, that makes you kind of like question where does the instability lie? What is it that is unstable that allows for this to happen? Do, I mean, does it, does somebody being creative just mean that they have a, an unstable personality? Cause that might be a little far reaching. I, I but, think so. I think that there are a lot of creative people who hmm, are, mm -hmm. uh, you know, who hinged. <laughs> no, who, who, but who also have it together. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I, you know, is it, do, do people act eccentrically and, and, uh, and disagreeably because this is what a, this is what an artist does and I'm fitting the mold or is it, you know what I mean? It, it's, it's a chicken and egg type thing. 
uh, I think, you know, it's like I, I had a, a friend once who decided he was going to start drawing and painting. So one of the first things he did, in addition to getting a sketch pad and some pencils, was to get a black beret. <laughs> because that's what that's what artists look like, right? So is there a, like a like a behavioral, uh, you know, set of um, features that some people engage in because that's what the creative type presents as? I I don't know. Well, there I've was got, uh, what is his name? Alan Alan Waits, Alan Watts, or something like Alan that. Alan Watts, the Buddhist guy. No, no, um, Tom Waits. Uh. That's it. Um, I was watching an interview uh, that he gave where he was talking about um, like drugs and and how you know people who don't like drug, drugs just can't handle it or something to that effect, and it struck me that that's just kind of like who he is, who he was, was just structured around being a, a, a counter counterculturalist. Like it didn't matter what it was. He was just going to buck the trend simply because that is, he bucks trends, whatever it is, he will, you know, go against it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of speaks to what you were talking about, you know, about there being something to uh, a truly creative person who that's just who they are versus somebody like your friend who just like does it because they're imitating because they they have this image of what they think it looks like and they're they're doing it to look cool mm -hmm. uh rather than be an artist <laughs> step one get a parade <laughs> step two profits <laughs> that's pretty much it <laughs> but i'll offer a few maybe reductive reductive explanations or or things to consider so first there's one of the things we haven't mentioned is just the personality structure. So openness, so creative people are open. And that openness kind of relates to what we've been talking about and what I mentioned about the the receptivity of kind of to to madness and to creativity. It's because you're open to certain, you're open to new things, right? You're open to to being on the receiving end of new ideas and and um and those new ideas might be totally insane, right? But uh, so it's, it can be hard to differentiate like with John Nash between the creative ideas and just the, the totally crazy ones. And uh, so that has something to do with it. And then there's the, with artists specifically, um, I can't remember where I where I heard this, but I've, I've seen it to be true in, in my experience in kind of the music world is that you've got all kinds of creative types, right? Who have that openness. But the ones that get famous and the ones you know about tend to be the disagreeable um, open types. They're creative, but they're like hard asses. These are the guys that self-promote and and uh, and push and like wheedle and grate on your nerves because they're they 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 want to elevate themselves, right? And they have the personality to do it. They have the, the personality to fight and win. Right, and then the, the the weak creative types are just like I just want to, you know, do my creative stuff, and and that all that's all I have to do, and I don't have to, you know, uh, fight in the music world and all that, and you know, the the music business and with record companies and stuff. But the ones that succeed are the ones that are have that kind of like that uh, ruthless business edge at the same time that they've got their creativity. So that's I think where that disagreeableness factor comes in is because those are those are just the ones that get successful because of their disagreeableness. Um, so there's that, but then the question about the Wachowskis. Um, now I'll probably get some nasty comments for this one, but I'd say part of the reason is the same reason why, um, like, women and especially young girls tend to be more 
prone to hysteria and like social contagion. Um, and there's probably a similar dynamic with creativity and with creative types that, um, and it has to do with that receptivity because <clears throat> like young girls, like teenage girls are more on average, more influenced by like, uh, like their peer groups and the, the, the opinions of the other girls and of the boys and, um, on average, more emotional and these things are more important. Right. And, uh, this comes down to just psychological sex differences, but also they tend to co-ruminate is the word. So, you know, a bunch of teenage girls get together and co-ruminate about their, their problems. And because of the emotional receptivity, emotions then tend to spread like, like a, like an emotional contagion. And so these ideas, like, so ideas can spread that way too, especially emotionally charged ideas. And that's what several, um, like researchers see behind some of the, like the, um, the whole rapid onset gender dysphoria thing going on in teenage girls is a, a, a dynamic like that. Like it makes no sense for like a peer group of 10 girls who are close friends to all, um, become transgender. Like that doesn't make any sense scientifically or, or statistically. Mm -hmm. Um, like if you were looking at it statistically, it would be like, you know, one person out of every five schools or something like that. Right. Um, so something else is going on and that would suggest it's, it's an emotional contagion. Um, so all those things kind of are combined together and, uh, and work together where you have this, you have the, the personality, the, the openness, you have maybe the, the neuroticism and then you have, you know, and creativity and all these, all these things kind of work together in strange combinations to, to result in the things that we see. And to, um, to further talk about the, it's the disagreeable types who tend to get ahead. Well, uh, in their book, they're talking about the control dopaminergic mm -hmm. pathway mm -hmm. and people who score really high in terms of the number of like dopamine receptors in that part of their brain, the ones with high concentrations of high numbers mm -hmm. are very, they come across as aloof and uh, disagreeable mm -hmm. um, because the way they describe it in the book is that, uh, you know, the, the desire pathway wants more and the control pathway will get you there and it doesn't care how it does it. It's, mm. it's unethical. So I, that's why I was wondering, you know, what, what does a psychopath's brain look like dopaminergically? Uh -huh. You are wondering. I was wondering. Well, actually, I don't know if I have the answer, but I have one just one interesting finding that we maybe we can extrapolate from. Um, this is from a book on a pretty recent book on psychopathy, understanding psychopathy by Nicholas D. Thompson. And um, okay, I'll just read a bit. Of particular interest to researchers has been the examination of genes related to serot serotonergic and dopaminergic activity in psychopaths. So the neurotransmission of dopamine through D2 receptors, R2D, no, not R2D, DRD2, 
has been implicated in emotional reward and stress processing. The DRD2 gene is located on chromosome 11 and is expressed in the prefrontal cortex and striatum. Um, because of the link that DRD2 shows with reward and other emotional processing and its association with aggressive behavior and psychopathology, it has become a popular candidate gene to study in psychopathy. So draw, drawing from this study, these guys um, assessed the association between psychopathic traits and two dopamine receptor genes, DRD1 and DRD2. It's funny that you could read that as droid, droid 1 and droid 2. And the dopamine transporter gene, DAT1. Psychopathic traits, okay, blah, blah, blah. Um, both dopamine receptor genes emerged as significant predictors of total psychopathy scores, while the dopamine transporter gene was not significant. Um, blah, 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 blah. Um, okay, well, so that was just, that's all that this book has to say. I know there are other, um, there's, other researchers that talk more about it and like hypotheses about how dopamine works in uh, in psychopaths and how that that contributes. He doesn't really um, he doesn't expand on that. He's just giving in this case the uh, the link. So so there is a potential link between the the actual um, well in this case receptor. Uh, receptors of dopamine. So something going on with the receptors that it, that is contributing to psychopathic traits. And one of the things that like uh, a potentially related finding about psychopaths that isn't necessarily framed in terms of dopamine, but could be interpreted that way is the idea that they are, um, that they find reward more salient than punishment. So you so psychopaths are notorious for not being receptive to to punishments right you you send them to, to prison and they they'll reoffend as soon as they're back out right you know they go to prison for murder and the first or second day out they might murder again right that's just the the nature of the beast but they are receptive to rewards because everything they're doing is for a, a reward the, what the things that they do are because they want because they get something out of it they they want something so they get it you know they want money and like you so like you said they've got if they've got that control well even well they'll they'll try to get what they want regardless you know using any means necessary if it means like screwing over grannies or um um you know killing people or ruining their lives it doesn't really matter as long as they get what they want but uh the the idea is that 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 might be the approach to to treating psychopathy is kind of like um, just animal training, essentially, right? Reward training. It's like you in in prison. The if they have like group therapy sessions or something, or it's it's pretty much you reward good behavior, and then you kind of try to try to get it into their heads that good things will happen if you if you do these things. It's not don't do these things because bad things will happen to you. It's do these things because then you'll get a reward, and um, so that. Yeah, that seems to be my current understanding. Well, this reminds me a little bit of our discussion about the uh, psychopathic serial killer, Israel Keyes, who um, reflects a lot of what's discussed uh, in this book about addiction, in the sense that he was 
constantly upping the desire for mayhem and destruction. And so whatever rush he was getting for doing the acts of, uh, of criminality that he was doing, uh, there, there, there was always this imperative uh, to, to do it bigger, uh, to do it uh, worse, to do it um, more effectively. And that was the, that was the reward system that he had um, wired for himself effectively. And that's highly suggestive of a dopamine, a purely dopaminergic uh, motivation, because that is exactly what you get with dopamine when it when it's a drug. You know, if when you have like cocaine as a as an example, you do cocaine for the first time. It's amazing. It's great. You do the same exact amount. You know, a couple of days later, it's not as good. You have to do a little bit more, and then you know it just repeats where the more you do, the more you have to do. Mm -hmm. And so in that way, what he was doing was very much dopamine motivated because as he said, you know, he had to keep upping the ante. He had to keep pushing the envelope because that was the only way he was uh, going to get that same reward is if he kept pushing himself in that kind of a way which is contrasted to, you know, something that they had talked about with um, like the, the Alcoholics Anonymous, where there's a social cohesion, a social bonding. And part of the, the reason why it works is because of the, the negative reinforcement. And by that, I mean, uh, when you develop a peer group and, and you're trying to do something to better yourself, you don't want to let them down. You don't want to disappoint them. You don't want to feel guilty for having, you know, not lived up to uh, your goals or your standards. But, you know, as you were saying, that doesn't really, that doesn't work for the psychopath. So, you know, there's something, there's something there that's, I guess, just non-existent for, for the psychopath. Mm -hmm. So that's why well, it could, doesn't work. Yeah. It could be that, that they're, just like we were talking about mental illness being extremes of normal things. It's like, this is, this might be the extreme of like, I don't know, the dopaminergic systems in the absence of other systems. Right. So when you, when you take out the other, the other brain psychological systems that f contribute to a normal human, then you get this expression of these other, you know, pathways. So, so again, you could you could find analogies and similarities between just normal human processes and what psychopaths do, but because the psychopath is lacking all these other things, it, it it's this kind of mad caricature of of what humans well humans do of what uh, normal humans do. Mm -hmm. Non psychopaths. It's like a like a car that has yeah, it's a a car that has the gas pedal, but it doesn't have the brakes. And so it just goes and it has nothing to stop it except the brick wall that it runs into inevitably. Um, well, maybe we can uh, talk a little bit about that as it involves our own uh, cognition of our like personal behavior and lives. Because um, it seems to me that you know, looking at these frameworks... Uh, in reference to our own selves and what we accomplish or don't accomplish, um, you know, how we can fall into 
self-indulgent uh, ruts, or like you were saying earlier, Harrison, you know, there's certain things that we purposely avoid and uh, and or project to, onto other people when, you know, if, if we take some time to reflect on it, what we might dislike most about other people is something that we do well to acknowledge about our mm. ourselves. So are we looking for examples? Not necessarily, but mm. um, well, I, I've got an example that just came to mind. Just, just throw it out there. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's easy to it's easy to become really paranoid, right, and to see to 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 see things that aren't necessarily there. And just a quick observation is that I've often found that the most like paranoid people. They're like, oh, you know, the, the government, they're, you know, so evil, they're, you know, coming down on me. And they're, it seems to me that they're essentially projecting their own personality structure, you know, onto the, it might be totally true, right? That's the thing about paranoia is that it doesn't have to be false. Um, you can still be paranoid and right at the same time. And you can be non-paranoid. Yeah, there's many variations. But the, the kind of diehard paranoid, like conspiracy theorist that we've all encountered yeah. is kind of like... Uh, um, oh, this, maybe in the same position, those are the things that you'd be doing. It's like, yeah, um, this projection of that, this like disagreeable personality that no one really likes, you know, that's hard to get along with. Mm -hmm. It's just another, um, another variation on that, that projection theme of, of projecting those, the self-critical associations one has about oneself onto the world uh, and using that as a means of not looking at one's own personal uh, failings. It reminds me a bit of the new inquisitions where they had all of the, like at various points in time, there would be groups of people who would be conspiratorial as a means of counteracting what they say is a conspiracy. Mm -hmm. uh, not realizing that they're actually the ones who are doing the stuff they're accusing everyone else of doing in order to to gain power and control and, and all of those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. It's it's total projection. But they can be right at the same time. Yeah. Right. But that's, yeah, that's the thing mm -hmm. is they, they can totally be right um, in certain cases. Um, so is there... Is there anything else? Well, I, I just threw or, that in as an example oh, if yeah, you wanted to finish yeah. your thought. Uh, well, just to add on to that, I, I have known individuals who were exactly that, who you, you know, they, you, you said something that was even mildly contradicting a point of view that they had. And the next thing you know, you're their arch enemy. <laughs> and, and they could be extremely intelligent people, but boy, did they have some work to do on themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other point I, I wanted to get at is that, you know, this isn't, these are frameworks. And I think that if we're ever feeling off course, um, th that there are things that we can do, uh, you know, if if we notice that there is this kind of tendency for for more and more of something that isn't exactly forwarding um, or, or goals that that one wishes to attain that aren't necessarily, you know, when you stop and think about it, all that necessary to achieve, uh, there is this, it's kind of the, you know, you can allow it to become this own self, you know, self-fulfilling thing. Like, uh, like Moraviev describes, you know, 
the horses being out of control and, and you are the master and you have to control the horses, uh, to use one analogy. Um, so we can course correct, I guess is my point. Uh, and, and being cognizant of when we're off course to some degree or another in our, in our lives, um, we can, we can decide via this uh, dopamine control circuit and perhaps our, you know, the, a good use of our imagination, a constructive use of our imagination and where we would like to be, you know, we can work towards stuff. We don't have to allow these mechanisms to run roughshod over our futures. Uh, you know, that's the, that's the positive takeaway, as positive a takeaway I can, I can think of to, to address some of these things. But it, I'm, I'm glad you recommended the book, Adam. I, I'm enjoying it greatly. What's the line from Cloud Atlas? I will not tolerate this criminal abuse. <laughs> I missed that. But we did have that neat, um, that neat section from uh, the Star Trek episode of Mock Time uh, to start off the show. And um, it speaks to, I guess, a lot of uh, the issues involved, including the cold, calculating, hyper-rational uh, thinking of Vulcans, uh, as well as their um, their desires and their, uh, you know, their, their needs and their wants, um, which is kind of something you don't think about so much when you think of, of Vulcans. But, uh, anyway, um, that's a particularly entertaining episode, a mock time. It's the one where, uh, Spock and Kirk uh, battle it out on, on Vulcan in case you want to go to YouTube or somewhere and, and have a look-see. It's well worth a, a watch, you think? Yes. All right. Well, um, yeah. So the book we were discussing, The Molecule of More, uh, check it out. It's really interesting, really insightful, really useful. And a um, lot, of, lot of good little tips in there about how to um, navigate different aspects of, of how, you know, the dopaminergic mind can influence uh, behavior with regards to politics and love and creativity and control and just how to, um, yeah, navigate it in a way that brings you what you actually want and not just what the dopamine tells you that you want. So highly recommend it. Check it out. Um, if you like the video, like it, subscribe to the channel, share it around the social spheres, and uh, we'll see y'all next time. Have a good night.